Sydney Environment Institute in partnership with Sydney Ideas presents Food Justice in the City Towards a Just and Sustainable Food System with speakers Savita Davison, Julian Adjiman, Leslie Lindo and Nick Rose and Chair David Schlossberg. Good evening everyone. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics and the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute and SEI is hosting event this evening along with Sydney Ideas. Uh, we start, as we always do, by paying respect to the traditional and ongoing owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to their elders of past and present. Uh, this place, where the university sits, uh, has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and their environment, environment and culture, for 60,000 years, two to 3,000 generations of passing down knowledge about place. And as a university, as a place of learning, we have a responsibility to honor that knowledge uh, and to bring it into our institutions. Uh, many of you might know that we just had a big uh, environmental justice conference here uh, at the university. Was oh, no mic. They're, they're yelling at the back, but there's no mic. Oh. Thank you, Michelle. As always, saving my life. Um, so, environmental justice addresses at its core uh, inequities in the distribution of environmental bads, environmental toxins, um, waste, pollution, poor quality housing, all kinds of community conditions. It also addresses the reasons for that inequality, mostly down to racism uh, and colonialism, a dismissal and disrespect of local communities, corporate power, government complicity, and exclusion from democratic decision-making. But environmental justice has been primarily about the injustice in environmental conditions. And likewise, um, food justice has that critical element as well, that some communities don't have access to good food, they don't have availability of good or healthy food, it's not affordable or there, that people in the food growing or packing or service industries are treated unfairly or poisoned or underpaid or abused, that all these injustices throughout the food system are most often on poor people, people of color, immigrants, and other vulnerable people. But the other side of food justice is a more reconstructive side, a more positive side, a more hopeful side, a more empowering side. Communities fixing food systems, creating vibrant and fair and engaged and connected and sustainable food systems. So this is the part of the idea uh, and practice of food justice that we want to talk about tonight. And we have some absolutely amazing, inspiring people uh, who are actually doing and creating and working in um, some, am some amazing, incredible uh, responses, communities, uh, and practices. So the way this is going to work is I'll introduce them one at a time, I have a 10 to 12 minutes uh, piece uh, to speak, and then we'll all sit down uh, and you'll get a chance to log some questions at us. 
them, not me. Um, so first up, uh, it's really a pleasure to introduce Davida Davison. Davida combines her passion for culinary arts with activism and entrepreneurship. She's spoken and facilitated workshops on food justice, entrepreneurship, and the localist movement at the Kellogg Foundation Food and Community Conference, the Just Food Conference, <coughs> Netroots Nation, Omega Institute, uh, and the Valley Conference. Uh, Davida is co-director of Food Lab Detroit, just one of the most inspirational uh, organizations out there, a nonprofit organization that represents a diverse community of food businesses and allies working to make good food a sustainable reality for all Detroiters. And Davida works to provide support to over 140, that's an old number, isn't it? more than 240 and more, uh, food businesses through resource connection, mentoring, high-quality workshops, field trips, networking opportunities, all with the goal of cultivating good food businesses. Uh, Davida's a native Detroiter uh, and moved back home after running uh, uh, a specialty food shop uh, in New York. And maybe you'll tell the story of the move from uh, New York back to Detroit. But please join me in welcoming Davida Davison. Well, thank you so much, David, for this, for that introduction, and, and uh, thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Again, my name is Davida Davison, and I am the um, executive director of a nonprofit organization called Food Lab Detroit, and I'm a native Detroiter. And for the next 10 or 12 minutes, I want to share with you in the audience tonight a story story about transformation and the story about transformation and hope through food. I am a Detroiter. And Detroit was a city that in the 1950s was the world's industrial giant. With a population of almost 2 million people and more than 140 square miles of land and infrastructure to support this booming Midwestern urban center. This is a picture of the Packard plan in the 1950s. And now, just a half a century later, Detroit is the poster child for urban decay. This is what the Packard Center looks like today. Detroit's current population is no longer 2 million people. It's about 680,000 people, of which 84% of those are African Americans. And due to decades of disinvestment, capital flight, leaving the city for the suburbs, Detroit is severely lacking retail. More specifically, fresh food retail. And when a city is lacking fresh food retail, a city that is 84% African American, what happens is that 74% of Detroit adults are now obese and overweight, and they struggle to easily access nutritious food that they need to stay healthy and to prevent premature illness and diet-related diseases. Far too many Detroiters live closer to fast food restaurants, convenience stores, gas stations. This is where they shop for food rather than they do full-service grocery stores. And you're more likely to find fresh, affordable, high-quality produce <coughs> in our suburbs than you are in the city. This, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, are distinguishing characteristics of this once thriving city that I call home. And it's not a good story, but that's not the story that I'm here to share with you tonight. No, the story that I'm going to share is a story about how Detroiters are changing that story. 
and how we're changing it through urban agriculture and food entrepreneurship. You see, Detroit's decades of economic decline have now made it possible for Detroiters to come up with some radical ideas for the city and the potential to implement some of those ideas. I would argue that due to Detroit's massive environmental and geography and the land mass in the city of Detroit, Detroit, Michigan, in my opinion, will probably, and I'm a little biased, but it will probably become one of the most important urban innovation cities in 21st century America. And I believe that innovation in urban agriculture, sustainability, climate control will come out of Detroit, not global cities like San Francisco or New York or Portland or Seattle. I'll tell you why. There's a great deal of open land in the city of Detroit. I show you this graph because some experts have determined that American cities like Boston, San Francisco, and the island of Manhattan can fit within the footprint of Detroit proper. Detroit's 149 square miles, and out of that, about a third of the city is vacant. That's a level of emptiness that no other city in America has. But here's the thing. In Detroit, we have fertile soil. Because of where we're located in our proximity to Canada, we are approximate to water. We have willing labor, and there's a desperate demand for fresh, healthy food. And all that has created this people-powered grassroots movement in Detroit that is going to turn the city of Detroit that was once known for manufacturing into what we call an agricultural urban paradise. So for those of us who are working in food justice, those of us who are working in food entrepreneurship, those of us who are working in urban agriculture, our goal is very clear. We're working to ensure that Detroit, Michigan becomes the most food secure, most food stable city on planet Earth. And it all starts for us with 1,500 urban gardens and farms that we have in the city proper today. And here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, these aren't just plots of land where we're growing tomatoes and carrots either, no? In Detroit, when we grow, we grow together. Over 30,000 Detroiters are engaged in growing in the city of Detroit. And so these are spaces that not only growing food, but they contribute to building social cohesion on top of providing access to healthy, fresh food. Here's what I want to do. For the next few minutes, I'm going to take you through some Detroit neighborhoods so you can see what it looks like when you empower local leadership and support grassroots movement to move the needle for poor communities and people of color. Our first stop, Oakland Avenue Farms. It's the largest urban farm in Detroit's North End neighborhood, and it's transforming into a seven-acre landscape combining art and agriculture and architectural and sustainable ecologies. What they're going to do at Oakland Avenue Farm, due to a half a million dollar grant from Art Place America, they're going to be doing a couple of things. They're going to create a hospital for visiting professors and artists and chefs and farmers who are going to be coming onto the land. They're going to be fabricating an irrigation system. They're launching a fresh farm convenience store in a retail space. And the farmers on this land will be turning the produce that they grow into added value products. I've had the opportunity uh, to work with Oakland Avenue Farm to do what's called farm-to-table dinners. What we do is we invite Detroiters and those individuals 
out in the suburbs, we invite them onto the farm. We want them to have a relationship with the food. Not only do we invite them onto the farm to have a beautiful six-course meal, but we also introduce them to the farmer. That's Miss Jerry giving a tour of the farm once they arrive onto the farm. And then from the produce that is grown on the farm, they are then offered a seven-course meal prepared by a chef. Beautiful dinner. And this is important because we want people to not only come together, all backgrounds, all races, all colors, all creeds, but we want them to have a relationship with the food so they understand where it grows. The second neighborhood I want to take you through is a neighborhood that's called Brightmore. It's a 21-block micro-neighborhood. It's a low-income community of color. And in Brightmore, their strategy is a little bit different. In order for them to improve access to healthy, fresh food in their community, they're pursuing a block by block by block strategy. And this neighborhood is about 21 blocks. And so what has happened in Brightmore is that they took a neighborhood that used to be underserved, that used to be very violent, that used to be unsafe, and they transformed this neighborhood, and they have now created what we call welcoming farmways and gardens. So on one block, you might find a youth garden, and on another block, you might find an old abandoned building where the community has taken a boarded-up building or a boarded-up house, and creatively, they've used this as a billboard to announce community-related events so that people in the neighborhood know what's happening in their own community and neighborhood. They also have a free library where the youth can come and get books. And so they are having a block-by-block -block strategy. And that neighborhood is so tight. They are so um, used to working together that they have also formed a cooperative in the community. That cooperative then came together and formed a nonprofit organization called the Brightmore Artists and Cooperative. They took this abandoned building. They took this abandoned building. They took down the bulletproof glass that you may see, and they transformed it. They transformed it into a community fresh food convenience store. And also, it's a community kitchen. So now that those farmers who are growing fruits and vegetables, they have now a community kitchen where they can now have cooking classes. They can also turn their produce into added value products. And then that added value products is sold at the community store. This is the power of food. My third example is I told you about the 1,500 urban farms that we have. The off-double farms are managed by a nonprofit organization that's called Keep Growing Detroit. So yes, I can tell you that there are 1,500 urban farms and gardens in Detroit. Yes, I can tell you that Keep Growing Detroit distributes 80,000 packets of seeds to Detroiters. Keep Growing Detroit has grown 250,000 transplants all over the city. Keep Going Detroit has produced 550,000 pounds of food that is grown in the city of Detroit. But I think the thing that I love most is they also operate and manage a cooperative that's called Grown in Detroit. And Grown in Detroit consists of about 70 growers, and they all work together. And what they do is together they sell their produce, in which they are paid 100% of the profits. When it is sold, it goes back to the farm. And these fruits and vegetables and flowers and herbs that they're growing, they're growing it on healthy soil without harmful chemicals or pesticides or fertilizers. And so these are ways in which we are working together. And here's the thing. In a city that is 85% African-American, 
One of the things that I indicated earlier is that African-Americans are suffering from diet-related diseases. And so at Food Lab, we know this. Restaurants and businesses have a role to play. And so one of our founding members of Food Lab Detroit is a member of businesses called Detroit Vegan Soul. They have taken culturally appropriate soul food, which is very culturally appropriate in Detroit, and they've turned it on its head. They've turned soul food into a plant-based vegan lifestyle. And uh, I'm really happy to say that the owners of Kirsten and Erica Detroit Vegan Soul, they started out as just a meal delivery service. Then they scaled their business to catering. Erica and Kirsten is now about to open up their third retail restaurant in the city of Detroit. Their third location is opening uh, at the end of the year, and I'm really proud about that. Um, and this is a picture of amazing seitan pepper steak, broccoli and rice, tofu, <coughs> this absolutely amazing. Um, and so Detroit um, is really about food entrepreneurship and urban agriculture. And so Food Lab Detroit, we consist now of over 220 small, locally-owned businesses like Detroit Vegan Soul. And we provide these entrepreneurs with hands-on education and resources to help them grow and scale. Guys, this is just a few examples that I have just a small amount of time to show you, but there are so many more I can tell you about. But these examples, more than anything, are about how you expand opportunities for everyone to participate and prosper particularly those communities and those members who are living in communities that have been historically excluded and marginalized. Yes, we are having a success story in Detroit, but we're a long way from succeeding. And I'm not claiming that we're going to solve all of Detroit's challenges through urban agriculture and food entrepreneurship. Detroit's still struggling. But out of the ashes of the industrial and financial crisis, Detroiters are thinking about a future of a city, one that is both rural and urban at the same time. The stories I told you are small and the neighborhood based, but they're stories about how we are trying to create a new society and the places and the spaces left vacant by the disintegration of the old, about evolving to a higher humanity rather than higher buildings. They're about love, love of community, love of the earth, and it's especially about hope. Transforming Detroit into an inclusive, healthy, functional, and productive city is a tremendous challenge. And there are no easy solutions, but we're hopeful. Because we believe strengthening the social fabric of your city and jump-starting economic development, it all starts with fresh, nutritious, accessible, affordable, culturally appropriate food. I'm Davida Davis. Thank you guys so much. Can that not make you happy? <laughs> Next up uh, is uh, Professor Julian Ageman. As a professor of uh, urban and environmental policy and planning at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, uh, Julian is the originator of the idea of just sustainability, the full integration uh, of social and environmental justice on the one hand uh, and sustainability on the other. He defines it as the need to ensure a better quality of life for all, now and into the future, in a just and equitable manner, whilst living within the limits of supporting ecosystems. So Julian's research uh, critically explores aspects of the complex and related 
uh, or embedded relations between humans and the environment, whether mediated by institutions or social movement organizations, and the effectiveness on public policy and planning processes and outcomes, uh, particularly in relation to notions of justice and equity. And Julian's most recent books, uh, one is on sharing cities, and he's just published a book on food trucks, um, which I'm looking forward to hearing about. But um, our good friend Julian Adrian. Well, thanks. Thank you, David. And I'm not going to thank anybody else because I'm really greedy about my 12 minutes. <laughs> I've got a lot to say. Um, so I want to help you to think differently about food justice. Um, too often, this is the kind of imagery, the imagery we see, um, the, you know, the, the, the idea of a food desert as the metaphor, the pathology about food. But I'm going to help you think differently because over the next 12 minutes I'm going to think about food as performance, food as refuge, and food as reimagination. So first, let's think about food um, as performance. I work in a university where food is often interpreted as nutrition. We have the Friedman School of Nutrition, Science and Policy. Nutrition, nutrition, very important. But food, as we were reminded by Denise, is about love. Food is about culture. Food is about food ways. The ways that we as individuals participate in eating, in performing our identities, our memberships of various um, uh, groups, uh, our racial identities are all uh, embedded within this notion of food and food ways. So food is an intimate commodity. Food is something we take inside ourselves and we all do it. And so it's a great gathering place. But food also defines who we are as people and our memberships of various groups. <clears throat> food can be performed in a spatial manner as well. Anthropologists have this concept of autotopography, inscribing oneself and one's identity and one's culture on the land. Planners call it placemaking. We can call it autotopography or we can call it placemaking through food. And as many of you know, if you're an urban planner, placemaking is the big thing in urban planning. How do we make a place? But what I want to do is just to take you through this, this beautiful uh, piece of uh, thinking that this young woman said. She said, I planted this garden because it's a little space like home. I grow the same plants that I had back in my garden in Oaxaca. We can eat like we ate at home, and this makes us feel like ourselves. It allows us to keep a part of who we are after coming to the United States. Food is the umbilical link between where you're from and where you are now. That's a real tweetable moment, folks. Food <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the umbilical link between where, where you're from and where you are now. And the important thing about that is President Trump. Uh, there, I said it. A year ago, he came in and has threatened all kinds of things about immigrants. Food is a constant in immigrant lives. We have sanctuary cities in the US. I want to see sanctuary cities take food seriously. I want to see mayors giving pieces of land to immigrants to secure their food ways. I want to see the Restaurant Opportunities Center, which is a sort of union for food workers, most of whom are undocumented uh, migrants. I want to see them uh, supported by mayors of big cities like my own Boston. 
Here you go, David, that's the book. Food as performance through food trucks. Mobile food vending is on the rise. It started in the Southern Hemisphere through the idea of street food, and now in northern cities in North America, we have food trucks all over. Now, let me first off differentiate between the creative class uh, gourmet food trucks, which get the best pictures, which don't get hassled by the police, and then there's the immigrant food vendors who are hassled by the police, by immigrant authorities. I, anybody want a paper on this? There's a great PhD that Mark, one of my students, did on food vending in New York. The data is absolutely there. If you are creative class yuppie selling creative class gourmet food, then you don't get hassled and you get the best pictures. If you're not, you're likely to get hassled and moved on. But yet, food trucks are not about a, a problem. They are magical urbanism on food They're part of the streets. In Los Angeles, the, the Loncheras, in various cities around the country, these, uh, these trucks and these food carts have spatial practices. They don't just go around uh, idly, but they go from neighborhood to neighborhood. And so food trucks are part of a performance of food. And I want you to remember that. The second uh, area that I said I'd talk a little bit about was this idea of food as a refuge. There are 50 farms in the United States, one of which is uh, run by uh, my university, Tufts University in Boston. 50 farms where refugees, immigrants, uh, can get a, a first footing into US agriculture. These are the new agriculturalists in the United States. They're doing no different to what the Danes, the Germans, the, uh, the Dutch did uh, 200 years ago, the Scandinavians. But these are people in Lowell, Massachusetts, in Phoenix, Arizona, in Minneapolis. They're farming, creating a new life in the United States. So food in this sense is a refuge. And this picture here is from New Roots Farm in San Diego. The, the third area and the final area that I really want to focus on is this idea of food as reimagination. And I want to dwell on this a little bit. One of the big things in sustainability in the food movement is buy fresh, buy local. Buy fresh, buy local. Yeah, absolutely. I get it. But what is local food in a multicultural society? Who gets to say what is local? Is it what you can grow in within 100 uh, miles? Some people will say, oh, that's not what we grow in Massachusetts. How many of these buy fresh, buy local posters that I see all over the place show bok choy or, or, or African bell peppers? They don't. I'm afraid that a lot of the buy fresh, buy local is a reconstruction of a past America. It's not a future America. With buy fresh, buy local, I've never seen a pair of black hands buying fresh, buy local. It's always an idealized, um, retrospective look at American farms. Now, these two people, George and Julia Bowling, tobacco farmers in Maryland, they did some research. Number one, the state of Maryland is giving grants to get people out of tobacco farming. Number two, they realized there's 150,000 African immigrants in the metro area of DC, most of whom are middle class doctors, professors, lawyers, and they want to eat African food. So this is the new sign to the farm of the, the Bowlings in Maryland. 
They're selling African produce. They're good American entrepreneurs. And there's a lot of people like this now selling pick, uh, grow and pick food. So the Africans come out, pick food, take it away. And they are helping the Bowlings think about what will grow. This is entrepreneurialism. So what is local in an intercultural society? What is local food? Who gets to say? The Filipinos in uh, San Diego say that their food is local food. They eat it in the restaurants that they run, but they grow it in their gardens and in their, their community gardens. So what is local in an intercultural, uh, multicultural society? I would suggest that we use this concept of translocalism. If we want to build a bigger, if we want to build a bigger uh, movement for, you know, for food access and for food justice, then we need to think more broadly about this idea of local. Because local really is one of these tenets that we are really going back to in a lot of ways. And so local has to become inclusive. It cannot be self-defined by a group of largely elite people. And my final uh, example of this idea of localism is from Greater Vancouver. 20% of farmers in the Greater Vancouver region are Chinese Canadians. 20%. They don't sell their food via the usual economic outlet, the farmer's market. They sell, them via, they sell their food via roadside stalls. A combination of Chinese entrepreneurialism and racism. Yes, it does happen in Canada. They don't believe it, but it does. Uh, Anti-Chinese racism in Canada has combined to create what the, uh, the academics here in Whitman called parallel local food networks. So there are the farmers markets, and then there are the Chinese stores. And I gave this same talk in Vancouver a few years ago, and uh, a Kenyan woman who now lives in Vancouver said, oh, I always go to the Chinese roadside stalls and markets because they sell my food. Now, I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong here, but we have to accept that this is a different view of localism. So local can mean uh, geographic local, and if we want it to mean that, then some people can do that. But we also have to accept this idea of a translocalism. And a translocalism, I would argue, is something that's going to give us much more of a, of a buy-in from a wider community of people. And just to sort of give you this final example of the way that food is embedded and food is perceived very differently. In the 1980s, I worked in a, an area of South London, um, and there was a large housing estate, largely white working class, a big pond, and the local people stocked it with coy carp. Um, at the 80s, late 80s, the Vietnamese boat people came to Britain, and a lot of them were put onto this particular estate. They saw the local people fishing in the pond, um, and they saw them throw the fish back in, and they thought, well, why are they throwing them back in? So the Vietnamese started to eat the fish. So there was a big cultural clash on this housing estate. And again, nobody's right, nobody's wrong, but there was this clash over food. So I think what I want to say is that food and food justice, we have to think very broadly about it. Often in the United States, we're drawn, when we talk about food justice, to the pathology of the food desert. There's so many creative ways in which food, I think, is being used to uh, enhance and enlighten people's lives, and ways that we need to think a little bit more broadly about what we mean by food and food justice. 
And again, being an academic second book that I've been able to push your way. Uh, if you're interested in this kind of analysis, this book, Cultivating Food Justice, Race, Class, and Sustainability. When I, when I saw the picture that you had of somebody uh, you know, handing over some tomatoes, I was thinking, did she get that from my book? <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you very much, and looking forward to some questions. Julian, we'll leave the plug for your book up there. <laughs> one of my favorite justice books, so I'll plug it as well. The best one. And this that, that uh, translocal idea that would really work well here in Sydney. So we should talk more about that. Uh, third up, oh, a pun for some Australian flavor. How's that? Um, third up is uh, Dr. Nick Rose who's a specialist in the emerging field of sustainable food systems and related fields of food sovereignty and food security. He has a PhD in political ecology from RMIT in Melbourne, investigating the transformative potential of the global food sovereignty movement. Uh, during an after his PhD, he co-founded and coordinated the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, uh, where he was one of the developers of Australia's first crowdsourced food policy document, the People's Food Plan. He jointly coordinated Fair Food Week and was the content director of Australia's first food politics documentary, uh, Fair Food. He's the executive director of Sustain, the Australian Food Network. He supports food system policy and program work, um, local government and beyond, with research studies into food hubs, which we should talk about, uh, local food economies, uh, and urban agriculture. Please join me in welcoming him. Thanks very much, David, and good evening, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be with you here this evening in Sydney on such a lovely spring evening. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I think that's particularly important um, for us as Australians, uh, and I pay our respects to any elders past uh, and present. Um, when we're thinking about sustainable uh, and just food systems, to remember, as David pointed out, that Aboriginal people in this country were feeding themselves very well for tens of thousands of years uh, before we as non-Aboriginal people here arrived in 1788, uh, 230 years if my maths serves me correctly next year. Uh, so the food systems that we're talking about here tonight are really in the broad sweep of human history, our evolution as a species very much experimental. Um, they're pilot projects I think from a a research perspective, and we're already seeing in very many ways the cracks and vulnerabilities uh, across the food systems, and I'll talk a, a little bit about some of those uh, in my remarks. So I do have a, a book to push. I haven't got a picture of it. It's not my book, I'm sad to say. Uh, it is the book of a, an Aboriginal scholar who lives in East Gippsland in Victoria, Bruce Pascoe. Does anyone know Bruce Pascoe? It's a matter of interest. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, wrote a very important book that I would urge all of you to read if you haven't, Dark Emu, Agriculture or Accidents. Um, uh, tells the story uh, of this, uh, this history of sustainable food systems in Australia for tens of thousands of years uh, and how the Aboriginal people uh, stewarded this land um, in, a, in a deep spiritual uh, relationship uh, through notions of country and dreaming and songlines uh, and that, that very rich tradition that we would do very well uh, to, to draw on when we're talking about food justice and sustainable food systems. Um, so I want to pick up on something that Tabitha said, um, uh, which really uh, resonated with me and I think links very uh, strongly to what uh, uh, 
that's what I'm about to say, and that is, if I do right, uh, that we need to be evolving to a higher humanity rather than higher buildings. Uh, this is uh, Thomas Berry, I'm not sure if anyone's uh, familiar with his work, uh, uh, an ecological theologian who died in 2009. This, was, uh, this is a quote from his, from his, final, his final book, The Great Work. And uh, the way I frame it is using an ecological term, symbiosis, which is, which is Greek, uh, means living together. And symbiosis in ecology uh, describes a relationship between two different biological organisms that involves feeding. Uh, so I think we can think of this in a, in a metaphorical sense. And this is part of this big, this big narrative, this story um, that, uh, that Thomas Berry refers to here, in that um, uh, we see ourselves as a species in relationship to the living earth and all its, uh, its, all its creatures and life forms. So we can either be, there are three basic states of symbiosis that we can be in with the earth. One is commensal symbiosis, and that's a relationship where one organism is, uh, is benefiting uh, from its relationship with the other, but the other is not being harmed. Uh, the second is parasitic symbiosis, where one organism is benefiting, but the other is being damaged and harmed. And the third is mutual symbiosis, where both uh, organisms in this relationship are benefiting. Uh, what Thomas Berry is suggesting, I think, uh, uh, when we look at the food system in its entirety, uh, and indeed, our relationship as we've evolved as humanity to this point in time, that we're in effectively a state of parasitic symbiosis with the Earth, and that we as a species are benefiting while the Earth is a living uh, entity uh, and its life forms are being actively damaged in very many ways. And in fact, that's not actually accurate either. Uh, the parasitic symbiosis is really uh, benefiting only a tiny fraction of humanity. It's one of the defining features of our era and it plays out very uh, very dramatically in places like Detroit uh, and in many other uh, cities and countries around the world is of course inequality, grotesque and extreme inequality is the defining feature and one of the defining challenges of our age and I'll say something about that in a couple of minutes as well. So this is the challenge, I think. This is, uh, this is an existential, even an evolutionary challenge for us as humanity. How can, we, how can we lift ourselves up? How can we pass from a state of parasitic symbiosis to mutual symbiosis? Um, this work uh, is something that I've been trying to wrap my head around in the last, uh, last few weeks because it's uh, extremely important. Anyone who's interested in the food system should really uh, get onto this website, IPES Food, International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. I'm not sure if anyone has come across that yet. Um, they put out a couple of, or three, uh, fantastic reports really in the last couple of years. Uh, the one on your left there, that figure, is from their report published last month about the food health nexus. And I don't have time to go into that in detail, but all those, what they've done there is look at the uh, published literature, uh, the various reports across public health around the world, and totaled up the uh, entire effects of industrialised monoculture, globalised food systems uh, on human health. And this doesn't even include the impacts on the, our ecosystems, remember. Uh, all those figures totaled up um, come to close to $13 trillion, that's externalised costs. The global GDP for this year is estimated to be around $78 trillion. Fully one-sixth of, uh, of global uh, GDP is absorbed or being catered for with this, uh, this, enormous, uh, this enormous burden on public health. And then on the right, on your right there, are just a couple of extracts from their latest report which came out a week or two ago, Too Big to Feed. And that is looking at um, uh, the impacts of mega-mergers, consolidation and concentration of power in the agri-food system. Uh, 
This international panel of experts is very clear in talking about the challenges that we're facing uh, at a global level uh, really come back to a, a very clear cause, which is an excessive uh, phenomenon of concentration of political economic power virtually across the entirety of the, uh, of the food system. Um, so uh, what, kinds of, um, what kinds of impacts does that, what, what kinds of impacts does that, uh, does that have? Well, they say uh, in terms of farmers, uh, we have a situation in which farmers are very dependent on agrochemical companies. Uh, in Australia, that's leading to things like suicide and depression. Uh, our farmers have rates of suicide and depression double the average workforce. Uh, young people don't want to go into agriculture. The average age of the Australian farmers is now approaching 60 compared to 40 of the average worker. Um, uh, farmers are subject to this, uh, this get big or get out dynamic. They're minor debts. Uh, I could go on. Um, it's also, this concentration has narrowed the scope of uh, research and innovation uh, as dominant forms have bought out innovators through this uh, ongoing process of uh, acquisition and shifted resources to more defensive modes of investment and particularly looking at protecting their patents, researching genetically modified organisms uh, and creating barriers to entry for people who want to go into agriculture and food systems. Um, and then finally, uh, well, not finally, um, uh, another couple of examples, reduction in seeds and genetic diversity as, as the big seed companies have emerged. Uh, and then big data and the use of uh, information technology is uh, a key feature driving, uh, driving these mega mergers and exacerbating the existing problems. So uh, what does this mean? What do they say? Well, it means that these dominant firms become too big to feed humanity sustainably, too big to operate on equitable terms with other food system actors, and too big to drive the types of innovation, the sorts of things that Visa and Julian have been talking about that we, we desperately need. Um, what do we need to do? Uh, we need to shift towards diversified and decentralised innovation, locally applicable knowledge and open access technologies. Uh, a new wide tech paradigm, as they call it, uh, which is urgently needed to harness the benefits of big data for all. And we also need to shift to short supply chains, innovative distribution and exchange models such as solidarity economies, and we must continue to circumvent, disrupt and deconsolidate mainstream supply chains and that must all ultimately be supported by integrated, participatory and democratic uh, food policies. Um, how does this play out in cities in Australia, in places like Melbourne, uh, in the outer suburbs? This is in Berwick, um, near Cardinia, where uh, we're doing some work with Cardinia Shire Council. Those red dots on that map, uh, that Google map, are fast food outlets. The blue dots are educational facilities. Uh, it's well known that the fast food sector uh, deliberately uh, saturates suburbs like this, low SES areas and places uh, its uh, uh, franchises very close to primary schools, secondary schools and kindergartens. I'll just see if I can um, show you what this actually looks like. Um, so you just get a sense of it. So there you have, there you have the uh, kindergarten, the early learning centre, early education centre. This is all within a radius of uh, about 500 metres. Uh, all the fast food restaurants you can see there. Very clearly targeting, and I think the word to use is predatory, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, I think that's actually uh, a factual statement of what's, uh, what's actually been shown here. All right, now I don't have time, Luke. Two minutes. Oh my goodness me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> totally blind this. Um, right. Just want to uh, quickly skip through. We can pick some of this stuff up in questions. Um, 
reframing this, uh, uh, the new narrative is what's needed and we need, we're talking about political economy, we need a new narrative of economics. For too long we've been focused uh, simply as the sole arbiter of our progress as societies on GDP growth. Uh, we need to get beyond that, we need to get past that. Uh, and what Kate Rayworth has done here, has anyone heard of Kate Rayworth by the way? The on economics, um, again, cannot recommend her work highly enough. Uh, she's taken the planetary boundaries framework there from the Stockholm Resilience Centre on the left uh, and integrated that uh, with, this, uh, with, this, with the idea of the ecological ceiling, with the social foundation in which we reorient our economies uh, so that human rights, the promise of universal human rights is actually made a reality. Uh, that everybody on this planet is taken care of, and that includes humans and non-humans. Uh, and as she says, the shift uh, from uh, a relentless focus on economic growth, whether or not we thrive, uh, to economies that enable us to thrive, whether or not they grow. That's the type of reframing that we need. Uh, how do we get there? Well, we do things like food hubs, and I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip over this very briefly, but food hubs being a, a consciously designed intervention in the food system that starts to address uh, in an ethical and transparent way, so many of the challenges that we're facing. I think it's a great example of food justice. Um, it's a sector that's thrived in North America. We're trying to really get it off the ground here in Australia. Uh, the project we're doing with Cardinia uh, Shire Council, um, running out of time, so I have to pick this up in questions, but really it's a, a multi-year, multi-stakeholder uh, food systems collaboration. The, um, uh, the underpinning of which is a participatory process to create a people's food plan or a people's food policy, uh, building on work that was done in Canada in 2009-2011, it was done in Australia uh, with the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance that was mentioned in 2012 and 13, that was done last year in Britain with the People's Food Policy Project led by Coventry University and the Land Workers Alliance uh, that we are doing in Cardinia over the next nine months. Um, that Alana tells me is happening in Lambeth um, and this is part of uh, reclaiming uh, food systems, shifting food from being a commodity that's speculated on and used for profit pushing farmers and soil and land harder and harder, uh, driving us over the cliff of um, ecological catastrophe and that is not an exaggeration uh, towards food that is thriving, that is nourishing, that allows us to flourish uh, in our totality and reach our full potential. So I believe it's at that point. Thank you very much. Thanks much, Nick. Um, last up, uh, another of our favorite and uh, just inspiring friends, uh, Leslie Lindo. Leslie is uh, director of the community engage director of community engagement, sorry, at the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, otherwise known as Bali, which is a network of thousands of U.S. businesses and communities that aims to create local economies that work for all. Uh, at Bally, she works to ensure that the community is deeply engaged and that uh, rep replicable solutions and stories are harvested, curated, and spread widely to advance the localist movement. And I have one of your localist shirts. Leslie um, became the first certified sustainable building advisor in the state of Arizona, a very unfriendly place for things like that, uh, and, uh, and co-founded uh, Ecology Sustainability Collaborative to advance the sustainable society through education uh, and economic development. Please uh, join me in welcoming Leslie Lindo. Thank you. 
Thank you. It's so exciting to see you all here tonight to come out for this topic. And I definitely want to thank um, Luke and David for bringing us all together. I have to say, I didn't want to come up because I was so enjoying everyone's um, conversations. And Nick, I wanted to kind of yield to you and say, continue, continue. Um, but it is, you know, I really appreciate coming at this stage in the conversation because I think a lot of the work that Bali is doing is really bringing this to um, a broader ecosystem perspective. And I've seen that kind of growing in the conversation. And, you know, everything that we've talked about really um, comes together at quite a beautiful nexus that uh, is at the core of Bali's work. And I just wanted to kind of lift up some of the themes that I heard in um, the talks tonight so far. Um, so first of all, relationships um, that Davida was talking about. Um, we're really, you know, similar to the solidarity economy, really looking at the relationship economy and recognizing that relationships matter most. Um, place making, so it all happens within the community, understanding, you know, we bring in localism, we talk about that, um, but it really is that, you know, understanding what are the identities and the cultures and lifting that up in that place. Um, and entrepreneurialism, so the core of, you know, the folks who are within our leadership network are people who are really looking to support the development of small businesses and entrepreneurialism in their community, so that's going to happen from all different stakeholders within the community. Um, the food and health nexus, when you're looking at any of these frameworks, they're all interconnected, and so that's something that we'll be looking at. And then the concentration of economic power. Um, really a strong focus of Bali is how do we shift the flow of capital in communities. And so the folks who we are working with are really looking to identify new economic models. So it's just really exciting to hear all of this and how that contributes to a new narrative of economics and that it doesn't ever happen in a vacuum. It, um, you know, you really need to have the multiple stakeholders involved. So, um, so just really kind of lifting up what we've heard so far and how that's all integrated in the work that Bali is doing. Um, so our mission is to build local economies that work for all life. Um, so looking at the human and ecological systems as well. Um, and, you know, in our title, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, it's really kind of hard to say, well, what do you mean by local living economies? Just wanted to kind of share that it really is um, harmony with local ecosystems, um, meeting the basic needs of all people, um, and supporting just and democratic societies and fostering joyful community life. Um, so that's the core, again, of, of all this work. And you know how we go about doing that at Bali, how we're creating economies that work for all, is by naming the brilliant folks who are doing this work um, on the ground in their communities from all different vantage points. So, um, so what, what are those models that we're seeing out there? And, and then we bring the people who are doing this in their communities together to connect them so that they can be a resource for one another and also learn from one another. A lot of this work happens in isolation and people are exhausted. Um, one of our fellows was um, the founder of Food Lab Detroit who was really burnt out. So when we bring these people together, um, we can really create a tight-knit community. And so we've brought them together into three very specific communities of practice. So we have the Local Economy Fellowship, um, which is the on-the-ground practitioners who are doing the grassroots work in the communities, who are really looking to um, create healthy and equitable local economies and, and modeling alternative solutions to the current economic system. Um, we have a Local Economy Foundation Circle, so these are um, small and private foundations as well as health foundations and community foundations 
who are really looking to align their assets um, with their mission, so both where they're getting their money and where they're investing their money, and then also the local economy investor circle. And these are uh, high net worth individuals and philanthropists who are really looking to shift their money out of Wall Street and um, really focus on place-based impact investing. And so it's really bringing these people together in a network, understanding that together that's how we learn and shift and transform to adjust um, society and you know, really nourishing them. So one, bringing them together obviously helps them stay connected and support their work. Um, and then it's also really connecting them to the other folks who are doing this work in the field. Um, so that's just a really important part. Um, you know, again, I can't say it enough, none of this happens in isolation. So, um, and then illuminating the stories. So what are the successes that are happening on the ground? How do we share that? And we talk about the value of that for translocal learning. Um, so it's really um, interconnected local economies. This is really the society that we're trying to create. And so after doing this work for over 16 years, what we've seen with both the practitioners as well as the um, funders in this space is that there are really eight key elements that they all have in common um, when we are creating healthy and equitable local economies. And so we created a local economy framework that serves as kind of a guidepost um, for folks when they're looking at like what, you know, what kind of triggers need to happen in um, our community to transition um, our system. And then, um, and then also how does that happen within a broader ecosystem? So who are all the different stakeholders in the space who need to come together to support this work? Um, so the local economy framework, we found um, eight different strategies that work um, to support the transition to healthy and equitable local economies. So act local first. Um, so I won't delve into that because we had a lovely conversation with Julian about what that looks like, but it really is strengthening your community. Um, that's really at the core of it. And whether that's from purchasing practices to just, again, really getting centered in that relationship-based economy, um, prioritizing equity. Um, so really looking at how do you build an economy that works for all. Um, you know, there's a lovely uh, cartoon that we've seen of the difference between equity and equality. Um, and so really it's kind of how are we supporting the people who have been underinvested and traditionally marginalized um, in our communities and what are the opportunities that we need to offer these folks um, to help give them, you know, the, uh, a fair playing field. Um, and then obviously a big, you know, piece of this that is our topic for tonight is regenerating soil and nature. So how do we use business to restore natural systems, um, accelerating collaboration, um, so really working in cooperation with one another. Again, it's this ecosystem model approach and shared ownership. And we're looking at what are the ownership type models within communities. You know, we've heard um, a lot of folks tonight talk about cooperative um, businesses. So that's one of the, the models that we're seeing, particularly in the solidarity economy. Um, again, I mentioned shifting capital. So how are we moving money to really support um, what's, what's happening, what's being developed in one's own community? Um, and then co-creating policy. We also heard um, that brought up tonight as well. So engaging all stakeholders in the decision-making along the line. Um, and then cultivating connection. Again, this is really about the relationship-based economy. Um, and it's, you know, it's looking at the work that you're doing, how that's connected to your broader community, and how that's connected to um, a broader movement as a whole. So that, these are the elements of um, the framework of what we see when all of this is actually you know, functioning within, um, effectively within a community, that we start to really see more equitable societies. 
And again, you know, this, this doesn't happen in individual silos. So it's not like one person is doing this aspect of the framework or another person is doing this. So everyone has to come together. And it, it happens from multiple stakeholders. So when you're looking at, for example, how are we going to support the food businesses in our community, you know, DeVita is the food hub that we, that we learned about. Um, you know, that's, that's an important backbone organization. But how is she getting funded? You know, how is, how, how is her work able to be sustained? So where is that money coming from? So that's part of like the community capital piece. We are coming together here because of the work that the University of Sydney is doing. And also we had a meeting earlier today with um, the city of Sydney. So it's really looking at these anchor institutions and what are their role in, in higher education. And then of course you're bringing in um, you know, the actual people who are doing the work on the ground and how are they a piece of this puzzle. So, um, so it really has to happen in an entire ecosystem. Um, and so what I wanted to share is just some of the examples of you know, what we've seen within our broader network um, that really demonstrate these ecosystem approaches. Um, so the Delta Bioenergy is happening in a very small rural community in Arkansas. And these are farmers who have come together to um, plant a new seed, camelina seed, for, um, for biofuel. And so that really happened when they had you know, the buy-in from the city, where they said, you know, if you produce this, we will actually use this for um, fueling our fleet. And so that's kind of looking at that entire value chain and recognizing who is going to be that end consumer and getting that buy-in from the beginning. Um, so, so that was the city government. That was an important part of it. The um, local community college um, was an important part in terms of bringing the community together. This is a very small farming community. It's a very different crop. How are we going to get the buy-in from the folks in the community? So that's what the um, community college really served as, is that gathering place and to really get people together on the same page. And then, of course, all the local um, entrepreneurs who are supporting all the other aspects of the value chain. And then in Richmond, California, there's the Anchors for Resilient Communities, who started a project called My Cultivar. And so that's really where the anchor institutions came together and said, well, we want to purchase produce from you know, local farmers. And as Davida was saying, with the small businesses, it's really challenging for them to actually meet that need. So if you aggregate them together, that's how they can fill those purchasing requirements. And then the Boston Ujima project is, you <laughs> It's one of the most incredible community, one of the most incredible community systems that we've really seen, where it's bringing community members together as investors in the businesses in their community. So it's looking at a whole different community investment model. And when you have community who is supporting and financing these businesses, you have your built-in customers because they're because they're now actually because they're actually now. Um, you know, investors in this business. And so when they're, they're supporting those business owners, they're actually supporting their investment and their return, and there's this connectivity that they have with the folks in the community. So it's looking at how are the different um, financial structures coming together from, you know, securing the community members as investments to layering that with philanthropy to layering that with government grants. Um, so how does that all come together to support the businesses and know that you have those built-in customers because most of the people who are investing in it are from that community. And so one of the biggest um, businesses that they've been successful in supporting is somebody who started a food business as well. And, um, and so of course she's you know, doing all the catering for all the events that they have. So that's just a great example of how when you bring the different members of the ecosystem together, um, you actually can really build these thriving businesses and communities. 
So that's, uh, I know we had our two-minute mark just a second ago, so um, so just wanted to share a little bit with you about what Falling is doing and how really when we look at food justice and food systems, how it's part of a broader ecosystem that uh, we're looking for shifting local economies. Thank you.